Hello and welcome to this King Hero interview where I have the really great pleasure of introducing the author of Sanction, Roman McLean. Before we get started, I'd like to introduce myself as a business coach and a purpose and archetype coach as well. I help people to either find, be valued for, or even survive their life's calling. I have uh, created a system of working through the hero's journey so that you can travel in a way that you don't feel like you're blind on the journey. And I love to highlight King heroes in my community that embody this journey, who have been through hardships in their life, got to the other side, and not only have they conquered something in their own life, but they have taken it to the people, they have offered their gifts in a way that's going to be helping and serve others. And Roman, you are absolutely the embodiment of that. Welcome to this interview. Hey, Beth, thanks a lot. I appreciate uh, you inviting me on here. Totally my pleasure. Do you want to take a minute and, or, or more than one minute and introduce yourself, say a little bit about who you are? Uh, yeah, sure. So my name is Roman McClay. I wrote the book Sanction. Uh, it's actually, there's, it's split into three volumes, but it's really one book, one story. And uh, it is fiction. It's a novel. Um, but it incorporates a lot of uh, disparate elements. Uh, it draws upon my personal experience, but also my analysis of uh, modernity, history, literature, uh, art, the, the world of wine and... Uh, and art. I mean, it really does run a lot of different uh, vines or threads or roots through a lot of different things. And so um, it is a complicated story, but I think that it is something that people latch onto because there's kind of a core humanity to it. If you don't, if that doesn't sound too aggrandizing, I think there's a core humanity to it that people resonate with now it's typically men i would say 90 percent of my audience is is male but mm -hmm. the women who who like it they seem to resonate with with the characters as well so it's not an exclusively a male uh work of art but but it is it is uh prim primarily accepted and lauded by by men got it yeah and that's very appropriate for my audience and where i'm at I consider myself a recovering feminist and really <laughs> right. that's, I think that's probably how you and I met. That's how Garrett and I met of the ionosphere, which is our connection and uh, just the desire to hold up strong men and uh, you know, where at all possible be at service to make them stronger in this world and show yeah. the example of how, how the masculine can really navigate. Um, what was it before we dive into all of that? juicy stuff what was it that inspired you on this path in the first place were there turning points where because obviously you weren't always the author of sanction how did you get there and what did that look like yeah so you're right so i spent the majority of my adult life as just a working class guy i worked in factories and construction sites and the oil field you know i was just a uh, blue collar guy um so i have i have no college degree. I have no imprimatur from the establishment that qualifies me to speak on physics or biology or history. Um, I, do, I do all that in the, in the book as an autodidact. I'm self-taught. Um, Beautiful. So I love that. Yeah, it comes, so the book comes from a working class perspective. 
Um, and so the aesthetic is working class. Um, but I tackle a lot of um, high-end subjects. And I only offer that as a, a, a caveat so people don't think, oh, well, this guy is a physicist or this guy is a biologist. I'm not. I don't claim to be. Again, this is a work of fiction. And so it's important for people to understand that. Now, having said that, I did my research. You know, I didn't, I didn't get my information from, from watching TV. Uh, I, I, I relied upon some of the best people in each of those zones, each of those domains, in order to educate myself. So I, I, I consider it a heavily researched work of fiction. Mm -hmm. um, now, having said that, uh, the way it came about basically is that because I'm self-educated, I've been building up a reservoir of knowledge, both from the world of fiction, you know, reading Shakespeare and Melville and Conrad and Flannery O'Connor, reading these people and building up the education that comes from fiction. At the same time, reading nonfiction, you know, reading history of Sparta or Scotland or the American colonies or the Civil War, and also reading books on physics or biology or genomics. So basically what I did is I married those two things. I married my long history of reading fiction with my history of reading nonfiction and tried to come up with a compendium, you know, a real world example of all that I had learned. The breaking point was that my businesses, I, I was an entrepreneur, I was what's called an owner operator. So I owned the business, but I was the one that did all the work, you know, uh, <laughs> I did not, I did not have employees that did the work while I sat back. I did the majority of the work, but I had employees too that helped me and, and subcontractors and business partners and stuff like that. What had happened is, is that I'd had a series of, of business failures over the years that uh, crescendoed into a final collapse that was total. And so, you know, I went from, making about 25 grand a month in cash to making zero all at once. And I can tell you that's a shock to the system. <laughs> and, and so I had to sell all my assets and retreat to my land. I had bought some land. I live right now in the San Isabel forest in the middle of nowhere. I have 35 acres, but I'm surrounded by 1.6 million acres of national forest and BLM land. So I'm, I'm in the sticks. <laughs> And uh, I was able to retreat here and gather myself after this collapse. You know, a lot of men wouldn't have that option. They, I don't, they, you know, men, and we know this. I mean, there's no sense in skirting around this. Men are committing suicide at very high rates. And one of the things that precipitates these suicides are collapses of relationships and, and economics. And I was certainly in a place where if I didn't have a, a zone, a domain to retreat to, the dark thoughts could have got me close to that realm because it was bad. But I did have the land to retreat to. So what I decided was that I was going to pitch a tent literally for five months. I lived in a tent while I built my home. So I dug the septic system, the cistern, the foundations. I put my containers, actual shipping containers on the concrete cut those open with my plasma cutter and welded in door jams and poured concrete, and ran plumbing and built my house in five months. And then moved into that house and got to work on the novel. 
So that takes us up to the beginning of the, of the novel. Wow, I love your story. Uh, I was born and raised by entrepreneurs and have only held one and a half jobs or two and a half jobs. I was fired from two of them. Uh, I just don't have that in me. It's, it's not my thing. Uh, I love the story that you're talking about because it's a, a big theme of the work that I do. It's when kings crash and they hit the wall. I talk about my dad often who was diagnosed with cancer 21 times while he was uh, incredibly self-made, had his own business, took care of a lot of other people and employees and clients. And uh, he kept he kept on going through all of that until it finally claimed his life at 75, but uh, still managed to survive it all and take care of everybody in the process. But it's, uh, wow, there's so much to talk about there in terms of that. When you, when you have that loss, and like you said, there is such a high rate of male suicide that when you hit that, because we live in a economic slavery, right? So when all of a sudden your livelihood is erased, and you know, do, do you have a family? It sounds like you're you're um, on your own in your in your. So yeah, you're not looking after a family yet, but uh, that can be even more reason for for the for a man to just feel hopeless and disconnected in the world. So what you've done is extraordinary. That's the the long way to say, wow. Well, <laughs> <laughs> hey. Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. What do you think it was that made you not one of those suicide victims that got, what, what, what was it that got you to the other side? Something that you knew about yourself inside or did you have helpers? Yeah, well, okay. So basically this, I'd always consider myself a writer and an artist. I'm a visual artist too. I don't know if you've seen my drawings on Instagram, but I do visual art to, um, but it's always been kind of a side thing. But with the financial collapse and me building the home and there was really nothing for me to do other than my art, it allowed me to, to pour and use the same work ethic I'd always used for business, you know, 18 hour days, seven day weeks, 365 day years. It allowed me to use that same work ethic towards the craft of the novel, right? And so I literally worked on the novel every day for 10 months and we're talking 12 to 16 hour days non-stop i mean i would take breaks to go hunt in the forest so i could feed myself um but other than that i was working on the novel and so i think my work ethic and men typically are like this you know it activates our thalamic system it gives us that purpose where we always have something right out in front right that carrot right out in front that we're striving for and I always knew that if I was going to go out, I wanted to at least have my novel written first, like my explanation to the world of why this guy lived the life he did. If I was going to go out, if I was going to fail, at least I was going to write my own uh, eulogy. And that's, that really is how I felt about the book, because I didn't expect anyone to read it, let alone like it. It is a shock to me what has happened over the last <laughs> year. It, 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 I mean that. I really had no idea people were going to like this book. And so now I'm in a totally different spot. Now 
not only do I, am I making a little bit of money, not a lot, but enough to survive from the book and the cards and the t-shirts. I'm actually able to survive, which I didn't think was going to happen. But now I have this emotional connection to my fellow man that I didn't have before. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the archetypes of like alpha, beta, and sigma male, but I come from a biology background, right? And so I first heard the terms alpha and beta from uh, biologists and primatologists like Franz DeWalt. I didn't know anything about the red pill until 10 months ago or a year ago. I, seriously, I, I had no idea what any of that was. So when I use terms like alpha and beta, I mean it in, in the taxonomic sense, like the biological sense, because that's how biologists talk about other animals, you know, and their location, the dominance hierarchy. So it was a shock to me that people use them as aggrandizing terms like alpha is good and, and pejoratives like beta is bad. I, I didn't come from that perspective. They were just labels to try to help you like blue or red or green. Like it's not like green's good and red's bad. They're just, they are what they are. And so that was a shock to me as well. So much of the book deals with biology and uses these terms, but I use it in a different way than is used on Twitter or internet or whatever. I use it much more strictly in biological uh, terms. Having said that, I think there is something unique about humans in, in this thing called the sigma male. The sigma male is a unique phenomenon in the human family. It's basically a, a male who represents or, or has the characteristics outwardly of an alpha. So he's larger, more aggressive, um, more risk-taking. And he can appear as, both to society and himself as an alpha. And yet he has one crucial difference, which is introversion. Most true alphas are extroverted. They really like hanging out with people, putting all their hands on their, their coterie and their, their friends. And, you know, and in, in, for chimpanzees, an extroverted alpha is always putting his hands on his betas. He likes hanging out with them. But a sigma is actually introverted and would prefer to be alone most of the time. Now, this is crucial. It may seem like an insignificant personality trait, but it's very crucial because sigmas have all the get up and go of an alpha. So they'll start their own businesses, for example. But because they don't have the extroversion, they find it very difficult to to um, lead their people because people under the leadership of, of a typical alpha need to feel something. It's not dollars and cents. It's, it's, it's haptic. It's emotional. They need to feel cared for. And if a person in a leadership position is introverted, it makes the, their, the people under them feel nervous because they don't feel that connection. And this is something that is actually very interesting. I didn't know about myself. And so when I did a kind of a reverse engineering of why I failed as a leader and why my businesses collapsed, I had to finally take into account the fact that I did not inspire trust in my people. And one of the reasons was because of my introversion, because I retreated into myself a lot. And so part of the function of the book is to explain this nuance of the sigma male to other sigmas. And I've said this online, I think I said it today, 
80% of the people who like sanction are Sigma males because they too have been wondering why am I 90% like an alpha, but I fail as an alpha. Why, you know, am I not, am I missing the mark? I don't fit into either of these alpha beta simplistic terms. And, and so one of the things the novel tries to do is, is locate that archetype which I think is biological, by the way. I think it's a real biological phenomenon, but also a cultural one. It's trying to locate it and explain them to themselves, at the same time explaining myself to myself, right? It's like a dialogue between me and the reader. We're trying to figure out why are we the way we are. Um, yeah, I think I'll leave it at that for now. Mm -hmm. Amazing. That's, that's really cool. Archetypes are my subject. Just since you and I don't know each other, that's, that's what I'm into. And I really haven't uh, explored this sigma, that distinction between, between the, the alpha that is also sigma. So that's a, a beautiful thing to, to, to watch for and relate to the king hero who's, and, and tell, me, tell me where you feel like your sigma male fits in here, because I actually haven't distinguished that quality. The king hero is one that, for the most part, cannot sit back and watch the world go to hell. I don't know if that has something to do with the red pill or not. I, I block that. I block that label. I, I, I actually block it. I honestly don't know what it means, even though I hear people use it all the time. And I'm, you know, I'm right. in the truth or movement myself, if you get to know my work more. But uh, the, the king hero, they just can't sit back and, and watch the corruption. They can't watch the inversion. They can't watch the... the um, the evil that's taking place they have to be part of doing something and it's not enough for them to just make money in a business it's often got to be something that's truly meaningful such as you're doing uh again it's not enough to just overcome your own battles it's about turning around and leading others and, and being there so that uh they can travel easier than you had to so does it does it sound related yeah, no, absolutely. Listen, the archetype I think that fits best into it is the archetype of the shaman. Mm. So the shaman is an essential role in the tribe. He advises the king. That's his role. Mm -hmm. He's not quite of the people, right? He's a little weird, right? Mm -hmm. Merlin or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. Merlin mm -hmm. to Arthur would be mm -hmm. the shaman to the king or the sigma to the alpha. Mm -hmm. So, but he cares about the tribe very deeply, but he can't necessarily relate to the tribe. He relates to the king. It's like the consigliere, right? The advisor. And the king sees his value. The king's mm -hmm. like, yeah, most people think you're weird, but I understand you. You know, and I was talking, you know, Chance Lunsford, me and him were talking yesterday. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, he was talking about the same thing. We were talking about this. It's like, most of the people who follow us on Twitter are actually like alphas because me and him are weird. And so like most of the people who follow us are actually, you'll look they're like high number accounts and they're total pure alphas. And you think, wow, they don't actually have that many followers. Cause I don't have, I think I have like 3,500 and chances 4,500. We're not big accounts, but the majority of the people who follow us are big accounts. Mm. Now that to me is a signpost. It's like, oh, okay, why? Because pure alphas really do need shamans or, or sigmas. They need that weird, 
thing, that piece to the puzzle they can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And I really think that's the role of the Sigma, is to not be off by himself, but to advise the king, mm -hmm. to give him the information he can't get anywhere else. And he's kind of outside the system, but he's plugged into it too. It's a, it's a weird nebulous thing, but, I, but a lot of people like me, like I moved to the forest, right, to be alone. I'd had it, right? Mm -hmm. But here I am, knee deep in people now. I talk to people <laughs> all day long. I've never talked to more people than since I moved to the forest to get away from people, right? <laughs> because of the book. Because the book was me re-entering society as a sigma. Instead of trying to be an, an alpha, which I failed at, I retreated, embraced my sigma archetype, my shaman archetype, wrote this book, which is half poetry, half prose, reached into people's subconscious, their, their right hemisphere, and became of value to the tribe. And Love that. yeah, and reached other sigmas to say, hey, look, this is something we can do. We don't have to retreat. We don't have to become the Unabomber, right? We don't have to become a suicide. We don't have to give up on the tribe. This is our role. Our job is to advise the king. We find a good king. You know, I have a joke with Ivan Throne. I don't know if you know him, but I have a, a joke with I. Oh, Ivan's a good buddy of mine, but he's a pure alpha. I mean, just amazing guy. And I have a joke with that. I call him the governor of Colorado now because I feel like he's going to be governor of Colorado. And he, he lives in Denver. I live down here. We both live in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I call him governor all the time because to me, it's a fait accompli. He's going to be governor one day, you know, and I'm going to be his advisor, you know. We joke about it, but I'm... I'm more than half serious. And, and I want to give other sigmas, other guys who embrace now that, that role, that taxonomy, that archetype, a, a role inside the tribe now, not outside of it. Alexander Cortez, I know you know him. Alexander wrote a tweet today in an Instagram post about him embracing that sigma archetype. Because he, too, always felt apart. But now he's got his tribe in the war room. Mm. And he's mm. like, I'm embracing this now as a sigma within the tribe. And you can, and this is the thing that I think we're all doing now. And I'm not claiming all credit for it. I'm just saying I serve my role. And Sanction has that whatever role in that new zeitgeist that I think is coming, where the sigma, you know, the aggressive and pro-social male who cannot sit around and watch it all burn to the ground, but doesn't quite fit into a leadership role either, he's not quite a king, has somewhere to plug in so he can use his masculine energy to affect positive change for the tribe and yet maintain his integrity as an introvert, an artistic person, and also a, a highly masculine and, and, and an aggressive male. He's got something to plug into now. And I feel like the shaman and Sigma archetype allows men, because you know, we're kind of systematic thinkers. We need that. We need rubrics. We need categories. We need to understand where we fit. And once we plug in, we're like, oh yeah, now we know what we, our job is. And I feel like Sanction is part of this new milieu where Sigmas are coming into their own we know the job we have to do now within the tribe. We're embracing it. 
we're talking to each other. Like I said, 80% of sanctioned readers are Sigmas. I hear from them all day long. And we feel, it, and we are like, yeah, okay, now we know what we are. Oh, this makes sense now. This is why we never fit here. We never fit there. We fit right here in between. And, and if I have any role, I really now think it's reaching other Sigmas. That, that's what I've come to. The, and I've really only recently come to that conclusion in the last month or two that that's the real role of the book is reaching other sigmas, other shamans and saying, this is our role in the, in the new tribal dynamics. And I use tribal in a good way. I, it's not a pejorative. I know a lot of people are like tribalism's bad. I don't think so. I think tribalism is innate. It's endogenous to us as a species. Um, and, and so I see my role as maybe as helping Sherpa, other shaman into their role for their respective tribes. Beautiful. That's amazing. Um, in my system of the archetypes, it goes through the hero's journey. I didn't know that it, they did that. It was something that was literally an afterthought after reading Carol Pearson's book. And uh, I was dealing with archetype soup before that. So um, the king was there and the alchemist was also there when the, that came out as a as a literally a map of purpose. Then the the stage after the king, the king is the second last stage. The alchemist is the last stage. So that's your shaman or your sigma. It's exactly right to a T. The same the same, and that's what they do. They are the king could not do their job without the alchemist because for okay. various reasons that they need that counsel. They need in order to balance that kind of power. In order to maintain their equilibrium when it comes to everybody following and venerating them and you know whether wealth or whatever power however power shows up for them they need that that role somebody who's and i love what you said that that the alchemist generally doesn't relate to the tribe relates to the king right so what a special position to be in a special role it's like it's a magical role like when you say wizard or merlin then that's that's absolutely it. and it's so powerful and so needed um yeah i really love that the and and then the the ultimate role in my mythology the way that i've painted and i'm writing it in in my book is that the alchemist is also the instrument that turns into that sage wisdom that take you know synthesizes all of the information that has been got along the journey, pulling it together, um, learning to teach in ways that are not conventional. They're not like the university degree. They're not sitting in front of a classroom and giving a test. They're teaching people without even knowing, you know, fiction is a beautiful example of that, that people right. don't know they're, they don't know they're learning. They're just, they're just enjoying a story and it's sinking in their, sinking in their, their bones in a deep way. And it makes their life and their work an instrument of returning humanity back to nature. And I'm not being romantic about the birds and the bees and the trees. It's about, okay, well, what would human beings be like if we weren't living through this distorted age where there's all the unnatural pressures on us to, to survive something that's not even, it shouldn't even be a question, right? This is God's earth and, and, the, there's enough for everybody and there's no population uh uh you know there's, there's not too much population that's a big lie i just had this huge tweet this tweet went viral 
for me this week about just saying there's no overpopulation guys it's a lie um you know so it's it's the the that agenda of just bringing back things back and seeing through the eyes of nature itself how how are are we seen in that context of like just what would be what would be natural i'm i'm like begging that my son will have a chance to see what that is or maybe by some miracle i'll see it in my lifetime i've been now seeing glimpses since praying for that but what do, what do you think roman what would that look like what would a human being be since you're so close to it right now what would a human being be like in a, a natural context yeah, so I'll answer your question with the caveat that, look, I'm an artist and a, and a writer. This is all speculation. That's okay. I, yeah, I try not to speak as if I'm an authority, as if I know, because I think I've been wrong so much in my life that it's given me a bit of a limp, right? Like, I'm like, okay, I got to give caveats to all this. But having said that, I did construct a novel until 2040 positing what we will look like in ah. the next 20 years so your question the answer to it one possible answer to it is baked right into that cake that's what i do Love the, it. the novel the novel is hey this is what i think could happen this is where we're heading a return to primal man and woman and society and uh Julius Evelo calls it the great return, a return to a, a golden age, but obviously different from the past because it'll carry with it whatever patina that modernity put on it. So it won't be exactly like the past, but it will have elements of the past. So he calls it the great return. And I very much uh, tried to build that kind of model for people so they could envision it, what it would look like. And so I won't say too much about it because the novel goes into extreme detail on what I think is coming and what could happen. But I will say that I think that this idea of reversion to the mean is a real phenomenon. You know, you ask someone, what's the most unstable state for an airplane, for example? And they'll tell you, well, it's when it's up in the air. Its most stable point is on the ground, right? <laughs> it just takes way more energy to keep it up in the air than it does to have it on the ground. Now it can land or it can crash, but either way, its most stable point is on the ground. And I feel like humanity is in a similar situation. What's its most stable state? And I think its most stable state is in small bands of tribes. That that's what the 99% of humanity look like. You know, if you accept the current estimates of humanity living between 100,000 and 250,000 years on this planet as a species. For the majority, the vast majority of that time, we lived in small tribes, small bands of, of people. I think that's its most natural state. Large nation states living under democracy are unstable. It's the airplane up in the air. Mm. And it's lasted for two, three, four, five thousand years, let's say. I mean, if we're just going to be generous about these numbers, mm -hmm. but still, even at five thousand years compared to a hundred thousand years, that's barely five percent. So I think it's unstable to live the way we do. And I don't think people accept 
the gravity, no pun intended, of that situation we're in. That we are in an airplane running out of fuel at 30,000 feet. And we can either land it or we're going to crash. I would prefer we land it. <laughs> but I, what, what I prefer doesn't matter. Because it, it's either going to happen or it's not. And now all I'm doing is saying, look, this is what I see. This is the physics I think is operational. This is the biology that I think impacts it. This is the cultural phenomenon that I think are relevant. Here's my vision of where it's going. But I admit I have no control over this. Zero. It, what will be, will be. But I don't think people accept. I think our people accept this, but I think the majority of people do not yet accept the fact that this modernity is not stable. We cannot continue to live the way we do. Relationships are foundational. Uh, relate, I think it was Jonas Salk who said that, that relationships are, are foundational, that they're not ancillary, that they are the core of, of this thing we have humans. And, and I, I don't know how you feel about this. We'll get your opinion when I get done talking here. But I think relationships are the thing the most damaged in modernity. <laughs> relationships between men and women, relationships between leadership and, and, and those they rule, relationships between brothers, between men, are all strained to the breaking point in modernity. And I think that that's where it's going to fail. And that my hope and my job is to start building new paradigms based on the old paradigms. Uh, new paradigms of relationships, of brotherhood, in order to Sherpa, a, or to mix my metaphors here, a soft landing of what's coming. I'd like to build something sustainable now before the crash comes so that the transition isn't so harsh. That, that's my feeling. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more about that. The relationship is really all that there actually is, right? That's, that's all there is. And, and it's, I love how you've said it. It's that one way or another, there has been a divide, whether it's between men and women. I want to talk about that a lot. That's something that I always talk about in the King Hero interview, but I also got caught the other day saying something about the boomer generation. And, you know, I've got a chip on my shoulder because I'm Gen X and my parents were more, were, were the boomers who fucked up the whole world and, uh, you know, left it for, right? Like, so that, that whole narrative, which is just a story. And somebody called me out on it and just said like, you know what, actually there's a lot of good boomers. And of course there is. And my parents were, were some of them too. And and it just showed me how there's another example of splitting the relationship between the generations, making us not trust our elders, for God's sake, not have a relationship with the people that would have the wisdom to pass down to us about how to live, right? So between men and women, between siblings, it's tragic, right? It's tragic. I sometimes tell the story about my sisters and I, how on my mom's deathbed, we were ready to kill each other. And it should be the absolute opposite when the tribe is really banding together and becoming powerful. Um, I agree with you 100% about the small tribe. I, I very much 
would be an advocate for, uh, if you don't know James True, by the way, you got to look him up. I promote him to everybody every single day for some reason. I'm such a believer in his work as well. And he talks about decentralization and, you know, that it's not, it's not that we're looking for chaos and anarchy. It's, it's that, that small groups can easily govern themselves in a very grounded way. I love your analogy about being off in the air like that. And, uh, you know, so the, the agenda is to move us towards greater and greater so-called heights, but it's like greater and greater instability and the crash is inevitable. The writing is all over the wall. The, the economics are way worse than anybody could even imagine compared to what the mainstream is saying. Yeah. And the relationships are everything because that's, that's the glue. That's the spirit of humanity. That's what connects and reminds us, you know, this is the second interview I've done today, and both of them have completely connected me, in, it, but the relationship has connected me to my source, to God, to the, the nature of existence, and it's just by meeting somebody I don't know and having a conversation getting related to them. Yes. No, I'm with you on all that. Amazing. Amazing. So... There's so much to talk about. Um, let's let's actually dive in since it's such a big part of your subject, supporting men and like how do you how do you think this? Let's let's tackle the the hardest subject of all and the one that gets people blocked and uh, all kinds of accusations just around the gender confusion that's going on. That you know, I look at the the cover of GQ for the first time in I don't know 25 years. And the guy's wearing a dress, a gown, right? And it was just like, oh my God, this is much worse than I even thought. And you know, how, how did we, and, and children having sex changes and taking dangerous hormones and having parents stop using pronouns, the language is being mangled, yeah. brutalized, taking the, you know, taking the Latin roots out. It's really fascinating to watch the removal of, of the the true roots of our thinking what's your thoughts on all of that okay so one is there's a biological reality which is that men's testosterone levels are dropping radically so that's not cultural that is biological that's just that's a reality is that men's testosterone levels on average have dropped more than in half over the last few decades. I mean, this is a serious endocrine problem. Why do you see, so I, why do you see that happening? Well, I mean, there's all, I mean, anything I say will not encompass it all. Okay. So with the caveat that I'm merely pointing out bullet points, I will say there's endocrine disruptors with chemicals in the water and the soil and the air. I mean, there's endocrine disruptors. There's also weird phenomenon with like the birth control pill changing women's proclivities for mates, you know, preferring men with less testosterone because of the, you know, the birth control pill is a hormone replacement, right? I mean, and most young women, breeding age women are on birth control. It's changing who they select as a mate, choosing less masculine men to, to mate with, disrupting their desires. So there's all kinds of phenomenon, you know, and then there's cultural ones where the media, you know, cause we're, we're a, we're not just a social species. We're a, what's called a eusocial species. So it's EU. 
S-O-C-I-A-L, eusocial species. And that's very rare on the planet. There's only, I think, 11 species on the planet that are eusocial. Now, all eusociality means is division of labor. So you've got the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. Most species don't have that. You know, each individual uh, lion has to hunt, right? Uh, but with certain species, there are actual divisions of labor. So for insects, most of the social species are insects, like bees and wasps. They've got the foraging bees. They've got the queen bee who just breeds. They've got the soldier bees. You know, they have these different jobs. And it's built right into the genome. And like ants are, are a big one. And I, and I talk a lot about ants in Sanction because ants are even more sophisticated. They ants, some species of ants literally have farmer ants. They go out, they get leaves, they cut them up with their mouths, they build like a mulch with it, which grows a fungus. Then there's like animal husbandry uh, ants that go out and get aphids and, and uh, domesticate them. And then they, the farmer ants feed the fungus to the uh, aphids that the animal husbandry ants had corralled. I mean, they got a real like, like tribe where they each have a job. It's amazing, actually. Ants are quite amazing. E.O. E. Wilson is who I learned all this from. And humans are the same way, obviously, right? We all have a job where some people are economists, some people are mechanics, some people are violinists. You know, we have all these different jobs. But one of the things that happened in, in the progression of human beings was the invention, basically, of free time that came with, with excess food. When, when human beings had created enough largesse, enough extra food, it gave time for people to become scientists and astronomers and uh, uh, violinists and philosophers because there was enough extra food produced by farmers and enough protection secured by soldiers that, that we could have new classes of people. Now, this is where it gets strange because I see that as a fundamentally interesting thing. Like, I don't see that as a bad thing. Other species do it. It's rare, but like I explained with the ants and the bees, they have that too. So I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. The problem is, is when you get a certain amount of excess, a certain amount of wealth, people can have so much free time that they really get up to no good, right? And I think that's kind of where we're at. We have so much wealth so much free time that now we have people that have so much free time that they're getting into the point where they are creating things whether it's objects like artificial intelligence that i discuss in the book or cultural phenomenon like feminism they have so much free time to create these things that now they're starting to destroy the society itself and i think masculinity is just a victim of these technologies for a lack of a better word whether it's the chemicals in the food or the plastics or the cultural phenomenon like feminism that are eroding the the foundations of our our culture and i think masculinity and femininity are foundations of our of our culture and they're being eroded both technologically from the chemicals or from artificial intelligence 
and also culturally from these pernicious phenomena like feminism or communism or what have you. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what I thought of. Absolutely. I consider myself, if you haven't seen, a recovering feminist. And I can easily piss a lot of feminists off saying that because that's become like a religion that, and you know, and honestly for 10 years, I was doing nothing but saying women should take over the world. Mm. And then I popped my head up from that and realized like, oh my God, uh, men are going down in the society, right, left, center, whether it's the suicide you were talking about or just the, the, the emasculation, the uh, reduction of fertility, um, you know, the, the, the very sad depiction. I'm right now watching the first TV show that I've ever watched in about 12 years. I, I literally have been off TV for 12 years. And there was one that attracted me. And it's, um, it's, a, it's the, the, I believe it's called the morning show. And it's about the whole media scene. And I, and I could see from the trailers that it was about the, the media narrative that's going on, that the media are like, you know, we think the media is reflecting what's going on in the world. It's like, no, 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 they're creating what's going on in the world. They're telling the story. We're believing the story. And so this one is particularly about women taking over, taking their power, and this you know, very melodramatic demonstration about how they're not going to take it anymore. And it's the you know, Me Too movement, and everybody's a victim, and we've got to smash those awful men. Every single man depicted in this scene, I've seen three episodes now, every single one of them is totally uh, effeminate. They are or, or evil and slimy or, or big and uh, domineering and, and like smashing. There is not one positive, strong male on the cast. And they're, they're glorifying how women are standing up. And it's just like this massive ego trip, you know, in the real world. It would never go all victorious for them like that, uh, especially if you're up against evil. Like they just smash you and you're dead. That's there's nothing. You know, it, whoever hits harder when you're dealing with evil, that's that's going to be who wins. And you know, so it's it's one of those things that is a, such a huge damage that we, people don't realize feminism was created to take society down. This is not about saving women from doing the tasks. And, and I, I don't want to be without, for those that are listening, I don't want to be without sympathy. I also, I, I grew up hearing my grandmother, when my grandmother, um, pardon me, when my grandfather died, my grandmother's life started. That was, she didn't have a life. She, she was not allowed to drive a car. She was barely allowed to do her art and barely allowed to uh, follow any of her interests or take, take leadership in the way that she would have otherwise. She was under, under my grandfather's very unhappy wing. And, um, you know, so that there, it's not that there aren't women that have suffered at the hands of, but it's not patriarchy. It's psychopatharchy. This is what we're dealing with. It's not, this is not the leadership of men that we're suffering. It's the leadership of, of uh, people who have no feelings, who are vacant of soul that's, that, that we're suffering with right now. So by attacking men, we're taking down the very ones that would otherwise be empowered to protect and, and save us from this nonsense. Not even not worse than non, much worse than nonsense. Um, free time also, I can see you're going to say something. I just want to add to the free time thing. Oh my God, you are so right on. 
Uh, and yet the narrative is nobody's got any time. So isn't that fascinating? Everyone's got their time for their TV shows and their vacations and their ATVs or their whatever, you know, and it's, this is the thing that one of the archetypes in, in my journey is the hedonist. And yes, of course, life should be enjoyed. And the, the ple pleasure would, you know, pleasureless life is not worth living. But if you're stuck in that and it's void of purpose, yes. it's void, right? Then you are on the road to hell. This will kill you. Yes. Worse, worse than your body dying, your soul dies. Yes. So one of the things I thought of was one of the consequences of this free time, I think one of the road or signposts is the enlightenment. So we had so much wealth about 500 years ago that people like Sir Isaac Newton could come up with the scientific revolution, Descartes, you know, the laundry list of names. This is one of the consequences of our success as a species is we had time for great men like this to develop science, calculus, physics, you know, modern uh, evolution like Darwin. But one of the consequences of the, these great scientific uh, uh, progressions was the loss of God. Mm. And one of my heroes, Herman Melville, I think wrote about it in Moby Dick in 1851. I think he was the, the he was the literary or fictional predecessor to what Nietzsche said 40 years later when he said God is dead and we there will not be enough water to wash away the blood a lot of people forget that second part of, of his quote mm. Nietzsche was very dubious about the loss of God he knew it was going to be bloody it was going to be damaging and I agree and I was an atheist for 25 years so you have to understand I know the atheist position better than most atheists Mm -hmm. Anything they could say to me now, as a believer now, I could, I could say 10 things back from their own side. So I know the atheist argument, believe me. Mm -hmm. The point is, is that it has consequence, like side effects to a pill. The pill may work. It may lower your blood pressure. It may take away your pain, whatever. But it has consequences, side effects. Mm -hmm. And the loss of God that came with the scientific revolution through the Enlightenment, has consequences and you touched on it the rise of psychopathy the rise of the soulless person and a soulless population now people it, belief in god and belief yeah let's just put it that way belief in god is at an all-time low mm -hmm. there's more and more non-believers than ever before and i think it's in fashion even, it's in fashion, yeah. And I think it's also people have had it robbed from them. The modernity has stolen the right hemisphere of the brain, stolen the part of us that still wonder and believe in, in, in the ethereal, right? The, the, the parts of the universe that can't be named, the part that God imbues. We've lost that. And I think there's a lot even more functional atheists than even admit it. So there's an avowed atheist person that admits it. But there's also people who say, no, I believe in God, but they don't. And, and not because they're malicious, but just because they have no sense of God anymore. They don't feel it because mm -hmm. modernity and science has taken over. And uh, one of the guys I read is a guy by the name of Ian McGilchrist. I don't know if you know him. He's Scott. He wrote a book called The Divided Brain. He talks about how 
the two hemispheres of the brain function separately, but that the corpus callosum down the middle of the brain fused them. And that for most of mankind, the right hemisphere had a, a dominant position. It was kind of in charge. And the right hemisphere is what controls our, our love of music and poetry and uh, love and romance, you know, all the things that make life worth living. And the left hemisphere is rational and it's good for things too. It can make sure that we, we don't go off too crazy and do, you know, it keeps us kind of within the guardrails. But it's kind of the masculine feminine, is it not? It is because, yeah, typically men are more left hemisphere dominant and women are more right hemisphere dominant. But what happened in his estimation is that society started to shift over to a left dominant. So a focus on facts and logic and reason over intuition and instinct. And he said it has consequences. And one of the consequences is this loss of God, this loss of belief in the ethereal, in the numinous. And this has consequences. So yeah, society's more rational now. We don't burn witches. Okay, yeah, that's a positive problem. Mm -hmm. But the, here's the downside. The downside is we care more about money than we do about relationships. Mm -hmm. We care more about logic and facts than we do about people's actual lives. Their, feel, their, into, their own perception of their life. Is it good or bad? So they can look at their bank account and say, I'm a millionaire, but inside they're hollow. You know, they can look at their job and say, yeah, I as a female am the CEO of YouTube, but I have no children and I'm, I'm despondent now. He thinks this is a consequence is that when you start over relying on reason and logic and you lose the right hemisphere, the whole society careens into this over-focus on reason and, and rationality and facts over what makes life worth living. It's children and your wife and your tribe mm -hmm. and your brothers and mm -hmm. God, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What makes worth living. And, yeah. and I think that is something that's happened over the last 500 years for, via the Enlightenment and the, and the scientific revolution. And I say that not as a condemnation of the Enlightenment figures. I mean, some of my biggest heroes are Sir Isaac Newton and Descartes and Thomas Jefferson and Thomas Paine. These are people I look up to. But I, it's just like a pill I take for a malady to lower my blood pressure, take care of my pain. I'm also aware of the side effects. And, and I'm saying there are side effects to the scientific revolution. And these are, are the side effects. And we may now be at a point where the side effects are actually more dangerous than the original malady. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, it's fascinating because and I, I, we're, we're going to have to start to uh, begin to wrap it up now. But it's fascinating that because we've turned supposedly over to this left brain way of being. And, uh, you know, so we're supposed to be so smart. And yet we're believing all of the lies that are being told to us. Right. So it's not even we're not even in the gift that 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 left brain is I, I, one of my favorite bandwagons to get on is how the spiritual world like I went to India eight times and uh, over the course of that it, it's all about you know uh, just like killing the ego and and not thinking and getting to this so-called enlightenment place it's another version of science it's just another kind of uh, quote for that same uh, narrative agenda and the you know, how convenient to tell people to kill their minds because your minds, if you learn to see and you learn to think clearly 
and you learn to uh, trust your senses and trust your own intelligence to just see that things aren't like they're being told. Uh, that we're, what we're being told is not true. As soon as you start seeing the lies, you see them everywhere and you're no longer vulnerable to them. And your clarity goes like skyrocketing high because you're, all of a sudden you can, you know, this is what I grew up with as a, as a young child. I saw all of that early on. I saw that things weren't right. I saw nothing made sense. I saw that life wasn't really worth living for anybody. And, you know, or like on mass. And so reclaiming the biology, reclaiming the senses, reclaiming the God's intelligence that's pulsing in every one of our cells is to me such a big part of this mission, whether it's uh, helping somebody build a business and, and making their purpose actually fruitful so they can do that full time, so they can turn around and help others the way that you are serving people in your own very unique way. Um, by the way, I couldn't come to the end of the interview without pointing out this incredible atmosphere that you're sitting in right now. I love your, you told me it was your kitchen. And uh, do you want us to say a little bit about your, your house and your lifestyle and why most of your house is your kitchen? I just couldn't uh, end this interview without hearing that. Sure, yeah. So I live in an actual shipping container. And um, what I did is I converted it into a home. So, I, you know, I plumbed it. And tried. So on the inside, you would have no idea it's a shipping container. It seems like yeah. a home. On the yeah. outside, you can, it's a metal box, you know. Uh, right on. Yeah. And so what I did is I divided the home into a half kitchen and then a third or the remaining half is split between a bathroom, shower, bathroom, and a bedroom. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, there really is pretty much only two places to do the interview. One is in my kitchen or in my bedroom. And I just prefer the kitchen because I get the best signal here. Like uh, right now, my phone is in the position to get the best signal. So this is why we have it. But yeah, behind me is a, uh, a uh, concrete slab made up of six individual units. It's, it's arranged kind of like Stonehenge, you know, where you, you lay the, block, the concrete blocks on top of up vertical ones. And it's, there's no fasteners. That, its own weight is what supports it. Um, and then behind me, I have a European mounts of uh, animals that I've taken from the forest for my dinner. Beautiful. I love that. It's so, it's so wonderful to have that close relationship with nature and to be giving and receiving at such an intimate level. Um, wow, this has been such a pleasure, Roman. How do people buy your book? How do they interact with you? Do, do you do any coaching? Do you, do you like, do you, if somebody needs help, do you ever, do you do any coaching? Like, do you, do you help anybody like that? No. So how do they buy so, your book? Yeah. Yeah. So people can go to sanctionthebook.com and mm -hmm. you can get the book. You can get the Euchre cards. I designed my own uh, artwork, original artwork based on characters that are in the book. Um, for uh, Euchre, the game. It's a Midwest and Southern game. Um, so some people may not know, but you can Google it and learn how to play it. I have mm -hmm. posters and other original artwork there, sanctionthebook.com. I'm also on Twitter at McClay underscore Roman. You can reach me there. I talk to as many people as I can a day. It's not like official coaching, but if people read the book and they have questions about it or comments, I'll spend all day talking to them about it because I love it. So it's an informal kind of thing. But yeah, if people are interested in the book, they can go to sanctionthebook.com or check me out on Twitter. 
at McClay underscore Roman. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, I highly recommend you go and purchase Roman's book. I was trying to download it. It wasn't working for some reason. So I'll just go ahead and, and order the hard copy by mail. Uh, I'm really looking forward to going through it now that we've had this conversation. It's uh, such interesting work, so unique and so clearly the, your life's work. There's, you know, that, that's the thing about the purpose is that it, it, you could never look and learn really from anybody how to do it. You had to dive in and create your life for yourself. So it's a, a really admirable thing. Really, okay. really. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Beth. I appreciate that. It's very gracious. My pleasure. Uh, so thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. I'll let you know if you're interested to learn your archetypes in the King Hero region, where you are on the path of purpose, not so much who you are, but where you are, then you can do a seven to 10 minute quiz and find out in a short time, get a little bit of a window into what your biggest strengths and your biggest pitfalls are at this time. You can start to learn also you know, where you've come, what kind of gold you've left behind you on the path that maybe hasn't been reclaimed, and also where you're headed in the future, how to start mapping out and uh, creating meaning in life to, you know, if you've lost meaning and you've lost touch with the relationships that would make your life worth living and you know you've got, you know, I talk to men that they literally will cry and, uh, because they know there's something they're supposed to be doing and they're not doing it. And so this is a mission that I'm on to support those strong men to get stronger and be a, a pillar for our society to, to survive on. So you can do that. I'm also in the process of finishing my book uh, called Journey. It's a map of archetypes to find lost purpose in a sea of meaninglessness. And I'm already pre-selling it. So if you're interested to jump in and pre-order that book right now, what I'm doing is offering an archetype study group at no charge so that people can be in the conversation and engage with me about each of the archetypes. They take place every couple of weeks and they've been like super, super fun. Really, really enjoy those. So feel free to contact me at my website, bethmartins.com. That's where you can do the interview. I'll put all of the links to Roman's book and Twitter and Instagram as well, where all of your art is. And also I'll put the links to the quiz and, uh, and the, uh, the book that I am now pre-selling journey. Thank you so much, Roman. This has been incredibly fun. I hope we can do it again. Anytime. Wonderful. Thank you, everyone. Bye for now.